We'll be reading this morning from Philippians, the third chapter. Uh, it's here for those of you that would like to follow along. We'll uh, start with that first word, but, and it's a connecting word. It means that everything that goes before is now encapsulated in what follows. But whatever gain I, I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own and that which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, not that I may know him, rather that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. We're going to hear from Josh, Josh Prather this morning. He's been here before. How many remember that? I do. We're looking forward to Josh's breaking of the scriptures and the word to us this morning. He's here with his wife, Rachel, and their daughter, we welcome you here, and may God bless us all through the leading of the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Thanks. Thank you for that. Oh, good morning. Pleasure to be with you all. Um, let me start just by giving a little fuller introduction to myself. Um, I and my family go to Redemption Alhambra, and I work uh, with uh, all the congregations at Redemption Church. I work centrally. I'm pastor of Community and Global Initiatives. And as pastor of Community and Global Initiatives, my job is to try to help our congregation however possible love those that are picked last in society, normally through injustice, uh, the loss, those that don't know Jesus, and the least of these, you can think foster care and adoption. So I primarily work with leaders in trying to do that. Uh, my wife and my little one are here with me today, and I think we have a picture of them. Yep. Yeah, you can, you can sigh. They're beautiful. Sorry. And the next one. Yep. My angel. My tiny one, as I like to call her. Um, so let me go through my outline, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. So I'm going to start by going through uh, the biblical story. Um, so I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis and kind of trace a little bit to lay some, some tracks to get us to the book of Philippians in our passage today. And then I'll roll through the book of Philippians going verse by verse. Um, the first six verses are our confidence in Christ. So I'm going to chop it up into three major sections. The first section is our confidence in Christ. That's verses one through six. And then I'll take a little break. Every time I preach, now it's really explicit, as you just heard in our text today. The gospel is pretty straightforward. However, I'm going to take a break right after the first six verses and really kind of hone in on the gospel. 
And then after that, we'll continue on verses 7 through 9. And the first six verses are confidence in Christ. And then 7 through 9 is all for Christ. As Paul is going to explain, everything is all for the sake of him knowing Christ. So it's all for Christ. And then verses 10 and 11 are becoming like Christ. As Paul says, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then I'm going to end our time with loving our neighbor and what that looks like through our text and uh, what hope do we have? In the midst of loving our neighbor, what hope do we have? Um, if you are new here or you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand? We have some folks that would love to give you a Bible. Some folks here. And if you do not have a Bible, that is Redemption Tucson's gift to you. I didn't ask them that, but I'm just assuming. Stephen? Yes. So, good. That is their gift. That's how most congregations do it, so I'm assuming it would be, be the same. Okay, let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the biblical story. Pray with me, if you would. God, I give you this time, and uh, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would fill me with your spirit, God, that I c- could communicate your word, God, as you would have me do. God, I pray over this time together that we would be filled with the love of Jesus Christ. God, please just bless us now in Christ to understand how much you love us, God. Be with us th- through the preaching of your word, God, and I pray that we'd be sent out from this place to be a blessing. Amen. So one of the ministries that I leave starting with the biblical story is a segue into that. One of the ministries that I lead in Phoenix is called the Daniel Initiative, and it's a gathering of international pastors from around the valley. So pastors that are from Burma and China and Honduras, um, El Salvador, different pastors from around the country that, or from around the world that have found their place in Phoenix. And it started because I sat down with these pastors, got to know them a little bit, spent time with them, and I realized that the church in the West has so much to learn from the majority world church, Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So we thought, me and a few other friends thought, what if we gathered these pastors together, we spent time praying with one another, learning with one another, and we really focused on trying to see the next generation of international multicultural leaders raised up in our city to be a blessing to city, to Phoenix and to cities around the world. So that's kind of how it started. But the first conversation for how it started is going to kind of lead us into our text. So I'm sitting around the table, and I'm with a Honduran pastor, I'm with a Brazilian pastor, an Ethiopian pastor, and a Burmese pastor. And we're talking through what this ministry could be, you know, because they're excited about the ministry as well. So what can we do? How do we get rolling? And my idea was, well, let's get into the room. Let's get in Let's lock ourselves in. Let's put everything up on the whiteboard. We'll brainstorm. We'll throw all our ideas up there. And from that, we can come up with the vision. We can come up with the values that form the ministry. We can come up with the mission, what we're trying to do, and then the strategy, how we want to implement it and carry forward. And each one of them's like, ah. yeah. they kind of sit back. Ah, okay. And then the Burmese pastor leads forward and says, why don't we pray? And like an audible sigh from every single one of them, they're like, yes, let's just pray. And I sat back in my chair and I thought to myself, what, am, what was I missing here? And they wouldn't say because they're too kind to me. But what connects to our text is what they were saying by just saying we need to pray is, are you putting your confidence in your works? Are, you putting, are we putting our confidence in the flesh? Or are we putting all of our confidence, all of our hope for this ministry? It only comes from Christ. 
And each one of them has actually articulated to me this longing being in the West at this revival in their spirit. Since they've come from a place of poverty, maybe as refugees even, now they're in the West, but there's something missing. And I have a friend who always points to his stomach, and he says, there's this fire that's missing in my stomach. And part of it is this confidence and this resting and full dependence on Christ. Now, where did I get that from? Where does that dependence on myself come from? It comes from Adam and Eve. Because we go back in the garden to Genesis 3, and we see that God didn't intend it to be this way. God set humans up to be representatives of his beauty and his mighty works to the world so that we would look at one another and we would see God's mighty deeds as we'd look at one another. But then also we'd reflect that back to God and God would look at us and he would see the works of his hands. He would see the works that he has done. Not that we have done, but Eve and Adam wanted to steal the glory for themselves in Genesis 3, if you know the story. So they tried to steal the glory for themselves, dependent upon their own works. And from that, it's trickled down through every single human being where we want to focus on our own works and boast in our own works that we have done. Or we're so insecure in what we've done that we're just completely insecure. So we're prideful, we're insecure, and we're not rooted in Christ. So Jesus comes as the fullness of humanity. Finally, someone boasting in the works of the Father. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he establishes himself as Lord, and he gives the opportunity for a new humanity to be born. A humanity that is wholly and fully dependent on Christ alone. And he shares this with Paul. And Paul has a vision to set up these communities around the world, and he ends up in Philippi, and he sets up a community. But as we come to our text, you have to fight for this. We fight for grace because there are people that want to add to the gospel. There are people that want to tell you you need more than just the grace of Christ. They want to divide the church, and a lot of times they do it for selfish gain. And this is the Judaizers in our text, which leads us to chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you want to pick up and follow along with me. Verse, verse 1, Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I'm only going to say one word about this, and the believer's life is a life, is a life of rejoicing. You're going to get more into this in chapter 4, so I don't want to go too far into it. But Paul, he's weaving in joy and rejoicing throughout this letter, even in the midst of talking about suffering, because he sees that Jesus is using it. Verse 2 through 3. Look out for the dogs. Oh, Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate, wow, mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let me start with dogs and evildoers. We're not talking about a household puppy in this scenario. Um, if you've ever been abroad and you've been to Mexico, you've been to Africa, Dogs are not usually household pets, and they're street dogs. So that's the kind of dog that we have in mind here. And the Jews actually referred to Gentiles as dogs. But Paul actually turns that here because they don't understand true circumcision. Now these Judaizers that are wreaking havoc in the church, they don't understand that circumcision really always was about the heart. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But they're evildoers, and what they're doing is they're heaping heavy burdens upon the church. People have found the grace of Jesus Christ. They're now resting in Christ, and they're coming along and saying that you need to add to it, and they're dividing the church. 
And Paul's language, if you follow through, if you come to the book of Acts and you go to the book of Galatians and you come to where we are now, you see that Paul's language actually gets stronger as he talks about these people. What was once circumcision was for Paul, once he came to find Christ, was kind of a symbol of national identity. But now he has no tolerance for it because he sees that it is dividing the church. It is ripping the church apart. Mutilate the flesh. Let's carry on to mutilate the flesh. And he says, we are the circumcision. Think of the word mutilate for a second. Think about the word mutilate. I think of violence. I think of distortion. It's a disturbing term. And then you connect that to a dog. Have you ever seen a dog bite? A dog bite is actually like mutilating. So Paul here actually takes these. This is Paul, not me. Paul actually takes dog and mutilate, and I think it's almost him saying, if you're getting circumcised now, it is not a pure, holy, set-apart, clean ritual. It is circumcision by dog bite. It is that disgusting to Paul because it's divisive. It's tearing apart the church. It's heaping on the gospel burdens that weren't supposed to be there. And it's ripping apart God's community. And he says, for we are the circumcision. Circumcision was always meant to be an outward symbol of something that God had done internally. For God's people, he actually sets them apart through circumcision, but it's always this inward reality that now through circumcision you are adopted into God's family. And Paul gets even harder in the Galatians. Paul, when he's talking to Peter in the Galatians, goes to say that he doesn't mince words with Peter. Because if you know the story in the book of Galatians, Peter wants to step back. The, the circumcision party is there. The Judaizers are there. They're heaping burdens upon the church. Peter wants to appear good with the Judaizers. So Peter wants to step back from fellowship at the table with Gentiles. And Paul says that if you step back from fellowship, table fellowship with the Gentiles, then you're out of step. This is Paul's language. Then you're out of step with the gospel. So for us today, I just want us to be very careful. When we know somebody that has come to know Christ, we're walking with them, we're developing them. That's why I love the music that we sing. We're always trying to get people to come back and be nourished in the gospel and not try to get them nourished by their works. You hear me? Keeping heavy burdens upon people, telling people they need to do more, they need to have more, they need to be more getting people to rest always in the gospel. Culture puts enough burden on us, amen? And calls us to strive for things that are inappropriate, irrational. And we're, all, we're trying to nourish people to come back to Christ and to rest in him above all others. And he goes on to say, the spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus. True believers place their confidence in the spirit of God and not confidence in the flesh, or in their works. And this made me think of John 4, if you know the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. I'm going to read it for you. This is John 4, starting in verse 21. And this is Jesus, well, just a little context before I actually get to it. This is Jesus having a conversation with the woman at the well, and she's trying to talk about the true place of worship. Where should we worship? This is what Jesus says. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. 
for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What Jesus does in this moment to a Gentile woman, to a Samaritan woman, what he does in this moment is try to unify two groups. She's saying, you people say we worship on this mountain, we say we worship on this mountain. He's saying, no, a day is going to come when the Spirit is going to unite all of us, and there won't be division within God's people. Through the power of the Spirit, there is one Spirit, there is one baptism that every single person in this room partakes in. So to withdraw from fellowship from any believer and heap burdens upon them is not the way of Christ, and it is not the baptism that you received. And we have to remember that Judaizers are the dogs, Paul calls them. They're the evildoers. They're dividing the church in Philippi. They're heaping things upon the gospel that shouldn't be there, and they're doing it. This is what makes Paul upset, because Paul knows their hearts. They're doing it for selfish gain. They're doing it for their own gain, and they're not doing it for the good of the church. New believers are overwhelmed. If you've ever walked with someone that's first accepted Christ, new believers are overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. You remember when you first started following Jesus, when you first got to know him, as we're going to talk about in our text? Do you remember that moment? Do you remember that season of life when you first started to walk with Jesus, when you first started to know him and the power of his resurrection? But slowly, we fall back into our old ways, and we start working for grace instead of resting, instead of resting in grace. You know, I think it's easy for, for us to know personally, if you wanted to evaluate yourself, it's easy to know if you've fallen into the trap of evaluating someone by, um, by their works and not by grace because of how you hold the standard for them. I think that each one of us, at the end of the day, we love to be saved by grace. We love to rest in the grace of Christ personally. We recognize that Jesus died for us. We recognize that Jesus saves us. We recognize that we're saved by grace alone. But a lot of times when we start to fall out of step with the gospel, then we look at our spouse. We look at our kids. We look at other people in the church. And all of a sudden, the burdens that we heap upon them start to gradually trickle in. Verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, and blameless. Paul says, Pause there just a moment. This was a common practice in ancient Greece that people would stand in public, they'd build up their resume, and it would give them a platform. We do this today with our resumes, right? It gives gives us a platform um, from which we're able to speak. And Paul is saying that his resume surpasses anything that anybody in Philippi is going to have, that any Judaizer that's telling you you still need to be circumcised is going to have. His resume surpasses it. Let me just go through his resume really quick because it's going to be hard for us to understand in our context. So, Let me talk through historically what this means. When he says circumcised according to the eighth day, this is according to Old Testament law. And what it means is that Paul is not a convert. Throughout Paul's list, he's really talking to the purity of his lineage. When he says Hebrew of Hebrews, when he says people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, he's saying that I'm of the tribe of Rachel. 
I'm not of the tribe of her maidservant. I have a strong Hebrew lineage with no Gentile blood that's polluting it. Once again, he's making case. If anybody has a case to boast in the law or boast in works, Paul's saying, I have more. Pharisee, strict religious sect with legal prestige. Everybody would know that, that Paul has this legal prestige about him. Zealous, persecutor of the church. Blameless, strict and rigid obedience. In the eyes of men, he was ceremonially clean and perfect. Paul's saying, if anybody can boast in what they've done in this life, if anybody can boast in how they were born, the family they were born into, what they've accomplished, I have more to boast in than anyone else. But still, let me, let me roll through a list that I think is helpful for our context. What do we boast in today? What do people like to boast in? Or what do we look at as a church and say, man, those people, they've made it. That's something to be proud of. And once again, not that we can't be proud of the list that I'm about to share, some of them, but we boast them. We put our confidence in these things. Or we look at others and say, they've arrived. Born a Rockefeller, maybe. Attended Princeton University. Number one NBA draft pick. Academy Award winner for Best Actor. CEO of a large tech company. Voted Sexiest Person Alive by People Magazine. Maybe that's yours that you want. Now, as to philanthropy, billions of dollars. And as to Facebook, millions of followers. And this is the list that we might hold up today. But what Paul goes on to say is all that's loss. Whatever your list is, and here you each bring in your own list. I don't know what it is that matters to you. I don't know what it is that you grade. What's your rubric that you grade yourself by to say, I've done it. I've made it. I've accomplished it. I'm something special. But Paul goes on to say it's all loss. Because no matter what resume you conjure up, nobody's resume compares to Jesus. Nobody's resume compares to Jesus. So let's, let's talk through the gospel just for a second. Because Paul, in trying to build a case for why he could, if he wanted to, boast in the flesh, he takes seven steps up. And Jesus, if you come back to chapter 2, I want to read through that beautiful messianic poem again. Jesus takes seven steps down. Jesus takes seven steps down. This is chapter 2 of Philippians, starting in verse 5, talking through the gospel. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, but emptied himself, sorry, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' list, he did not exploit his deity. He emptied himself by becoming a servant. 
He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Here we are talking about flesh, and it says Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He humbled himself. He became obedient. He died for the world. He died for the world on the cross, a hideous, embarrassing, shameful, completely exposed, naked death. Jesus endured. That's the resume. So Paul, when Paul is giving his resume and he's about to boast only in Christ and he's about to turn the resume on its head and say, you actually need to die. You don't boast in your accomplishments, but you give up your life. He's only following the way of Jesus. Now, this whole book is just about reenacting the gospel story, trying to get it into our bones so that the life of Christ actually radiates from us. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. When you add something new to your resume, it feels good, right? When you start checking things off the list, when you get that new promotion, when you get that new house, you know, whatever it may be, when you get that new degree, when you get that new certificate, now, those things in and of themselves aren't bad, but we can't boast in these things. The only thing that we have to boast in is Christ. And if you come in here and you're boasting in anything else, Christian or non-Christian, than the gospel, I will call you to submit yourself to Jesus. Lay down your resume or lay aside your resume and pick up the grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. The second section, verses 7 through 9, are all for Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. As I said before, Paul is building a case for why he has reason to speak and why he has reason to boast. And then he turns it all around and says, I counted as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And the word gain here in the Hebrew is plural. So he's talking about all the different gains, his full list. And you have your list. We, we have all our gains, this plurality of gains. And Paul says it all amounts in Greek to one loss, singular. All the gains that we heap up and say, this is what makes me significant. This is what matters in life. These accomplishments, these things that I have done with the works of my hands, with flesh. And Paul calls them all one singular loss in comparison to knowing Christ. Let me read Paul's new resume. This is Paul's new resume. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. I'm almost done, but he keeps going. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul stops there and he goes on to says, but I boast because in my weakness, Jesus is made strong because he gets to have fellowship in his weakness, no matter what he gets fellowship with Christ, because he says it's all for the sake of Christ. Christianity, 
Christianity is first and foremost not just about a resume swap, although it is, and we're going to get to that in just a second, that your resume could never add up to your righteousness. So therefore, we need a swap, and Jesus has to give us his resume. We'll talk about that in just a second with justification. But first and foremost, Jesus, or first and foremost Christianity is about gaining Christ. The man knowing Jesus. There is a hunger for intimacy and fellowship with Jesus in this letter. When I first became a believer, this is one of the first passages that captivated me. Because I never under, fully understood Christianity until this. Is that it's not just about doing good. It's not just about righteousness and standing in a right standing before God. It's a hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ to know him, to know Christ. This is what David says in Psalms, Psalms 42, verses 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He goes on, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze, listen to what David says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Do you have that sort of hunger? Is that why you do what you do? Is that why you're here? To get more of Jesus? To get more of Christ just reading it? it convicts me and it stirs in me. Is that why I do this? Is that why I'm up here right now? That I may know him? That we may have fellowship with one another? That there may be unity with us? Because that's what I get from Paul. And any other resume we build outside of knowing him is lost. Verse 8, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing him. And each one of you, if you're a believer, you know that surpassing worth. Remember it with me. <laughs> Take a moment and remember when you first understood the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. You're striving, you're hungering, you're thirsting, and you find Christ and there's a satisfaction that nothing compares to in knowing Christ Jesus. Matt Chandler, he's reflecting in his book on uh, Brother Lawrence and his writings, this hunger and thirst for God. So this is Matt, a quote from Matt Chandler, reflecting on the presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Matt Chandler says this, the practice of the presence of God by Brother Lawrence is probably the most confounding expression that I have read of the pursuit of Christ as better and sweeter. He writes, I am presently, and this is Brother Lawrence, practice of the presence of God. I am presently recalled by inward motions so charming and delicious, that's what Brother Lawrence says, so charming and delicious that I am ashamed to mention them. And I love what Matt Chandler says going on. Quoting on that, or speaking to that, he says, to this day... With all, my with all the theological education I've attained, I still have no idea what he's talking about. 
He says, but I love how he says, but I can feel it. But I can feel it. And you in the room, if you've met Christ, you hear that and you feel it as well. Or if you don't feel it now, you remember it. You remember when he was sweet, when he was delicious to you, and you hunger and thirst for it again, and that's why you're here. And he goes on to say, I have suffered the loss of all things. You know, as I reflected on this list, pause there just a moment. As I reflected on this list, I think it's incredible that so much of the list that Paul has, he didn't even get to choose. A lot of this comes just from him being born into his family, you know? But laying these things aside in our lives is not easy work. So don't let me make it sound that counting everything that you've worked so hard for as loss in comparison, not that it is loss and not that you just sweep it aside as if it never mattered, that's not it. But in comparison, in comparison, counting his loss is not easy. But trust me that Jesus is sweeter. No matter what you hold on to, that you put your confidence in, that you hold up, that you want to boast in, nothing compares to the sweetness of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, I count all of them now as rubbish. That word rubbish is translated feces or garbage. Now, how many of you in here, by show of hands, have actually cleaned up uh, feces in your life? Yeah, quite a few. All right. Uh, I remember growing up, this is a regular ritual. You know, this was part of my formation growing up as a child, is cleaning up my dog's feces on the carpet. Uh, we had a ton of dogs growing up. We never decided to train them. I don't know why, but, you know, never really trained, so they just, like, went all over the house, you know. So I have this in my mind, you know, this, this feces over here of my childhood, and then I also have uh, seminary in mind, you know. How do these two connect? So I just graduated from seminary. It's a four-year journey. It was a lot of reading. It was a lot of study, a lot of early mornings. Stephen's in the program now. Pray for him. It's a lot a lot of work, right? But what Paul is saying, and I was proud of that accomplishment. He's like, but if I even want to compare this accomplishment, if I even want to compare this to knowing Christ, then it becomes like this number two over here that I cleaned up when I was a child. This feces right here that I want to clean up. No, nothing compares. He calls it rubbish. Those are Paul's words. He calls it rubbish. Verses nine, carry on with me. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Pause there. I want to talk about found in him. And I want to remember who Christ is. So I gave you a list earlier of Jesus' descent, the seven things, how Jesus gradually stepped down. But let's go through that list, but let's talk about who Jesus actually is. So, he did not exploit his deity, but Jesus is God. But he willingly chose to lie it down. He became nothing, and this is the text in Philippians, he became nothing, but Jesus actually owns everything. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he is eternal. He was, he is, and he will be. He became a servant, but he is actually the king of of the entire world. He died for the world, and he created the world. He was obedient to the point of death, but he conquered death. Death could not hold him, and now death in Jesus has lost its sting, and he is the Lord of salvation. 
Now we have to ask ourselves, where we want to be found? Do we want to be found in the resume, in the righteousness of Christ? Or do we want to be found in our personal resume that we conjure up together? Because only one of these resumes is going to justify. And it's important for us, a lot of you have been coming to the church your whole life, but it's important to remember that only one resume justifies and satisfies because righteousness can only be found in Christ. Because of sin now, the world is tainted and polluted, our hearts are polluted, and only one thing can justify us and put us in a right standing with God, and that is the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing now that can actually be a cure and a remedy to what plagues humanity and what plagues each one of our hearts. Jesus leads the way in suffering and moving forward, and Paul wants to follow after and become like him. Verses 10 through 11 is becoming like Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And here's what I love is that you think it would be enough for Paul just to say that all of it's lost in comparison to Christ. In comparison to knowing Jesus, none of this really matters. Everything is lost in comparison to Christ. But Paul's not satisfied. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with where you're at with Christ? Are you satisfied with where you're at in your marriage? Are you satisfied with where you're at with your kids? Are you satisfied with where you're at? Or do you hunger and thirst for more? Is this just a mundane ritual that brings you here today? Or is there a hunger inside of you that says, I want more? More of you more of you, because you see this in Paul. By any means necessary, Paul wants more of Christ. He'll do whatever he has to do, including walking the road of suffering. None of us want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. But Paul is willing, saying, if that is the road that's going to take me to Christ, then I am willing to walk down that road. Luke 9, 22 through 24 says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And this is Jesus. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll save it. Are we hungry and thirsty for Christ? And when we participate in Christ's sufferings, it always connects us with our neighbors. It will always lead us into loving our neighbor, which is the next section from verse 10. Loving our neighbor. I want to talk through this through a story, a story of a man named Farrington Kumalo. Farrington Kumalo was Born in the small nation of Swaziland in Africa, he was orphaned at a young age, but would grow up to become one of the most prominent, well-known soccer players in Swaziland at the age of 21. And at the age of 21, Farrington thought he had everything he ever wanted. He had the parties, he had the fame, he had the ladies, everything he could ever wanted in 1971. But um, if you've ever been to Africa, a lot of times, if you're in the bush, there's one-lane roads. So they're on a one-lane road. It's Farrington in the car with four others on his soccer team, and the manager of their soccer team is driving. 
and someone, a truck, is coming across a bridge, so the manager pulls to the side of the road and parks, but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the manager decides to accelerate, go across the bridge, and cause a head-on collision with the truck that's coming across. They find out the manager, I'm not going to go too far into that, but the manager was actually committing suicide. So because of that collision, almost everybody in the car died. One person survived, the driver didn't survive. One person survived that had severe brain damage, and Farrington survived that had his spine completely crushed. It made him a quadriplegic. So my father-in-law meets Farrington in 1974 in a small hospital in the bush of Swaziland, and that's where Farrington had been for four years. My father-in-law is there to visit somebody else, and he goes over and starts to talk to Farrington. He hears the story, and immediately, my father-in-law is overwhelmed. He's a pastor as well. He's overwhelmed, and he says, do you know Christ? And Farrington says, thank God. Yes. And he says, I thank God every day for the accident. I thank God every day for the accident. And this is his words. I promise you this is his words. Because I got to gain Christ. Quadriplegic. I thank God every day because I got to gain Christ. And my father-in-law, of course, as we all are, is a bit overwhelmed by the story. And he's a headmaster at a school. So he says, you have to come and talk to the kids. I got to get you out of here. Come talk to the kids. He, hasn't, he hadn't left the hospital in four years. I don't know if he'd left the room where he was at in four years. So finally, he gets him in front of the high school students. There's a crowd of 350 high school students, and everybody knows who Farrington is because he was like a, a legend in the nation. He was a soccer star. So he comes in, and you could hear a pin drop. A hush falls over these 350 kids because who was once like this physical specimen of soccer power now stands or sits in front of them, weak, feeble, skinny, and my father-in-law passes the mic to Farrington, puts it up to his mouth, and he says, you look at me, and you pity me. And he says, and this is his words again, look at the word, he says, but I pity you if you do not know Christ. For 25 years, Farrington would live in that hospital, and anybody that would come into the room, anybody that wanted a chance to talk to him, all they would hear is Christ. He would boast in Christ. Our boasting in Christ does not stay with us. It's not an internal reality that we just get to soak up for ourselves. The boasting overflows into the world, just as it did with Farrington. It can't stop with us, and it bleeds over. And how could Farrington have this boasting and this hope? Well, Farrington also had a vision of future hope, which leads us to, to verse 11. And I want to end by talking about hope. I'll wrap up with this. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. My father-in-law also, going back to the story of Farrington, he also got Farrington a spot on a radio show. And Farrington's on the radio and they're interviewing him. And they asked him this question, how do you cope with this lifelong handicap? And here's what he said. Some people are living for time, but I am living for eternity. The power of the resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit, which raised Jesus literally from the dead, is the same now that raises us spiritually from the dead, has the power today to raise you physically from the dead, but promises 
promises that one day you will physically, wholly, fully be united and risen with Christ. It was a hope of resurrection that Farrington held on to, that the Apostle Paul lived into this reality, hungering for the resurrection to finally come, that the church in Philippi lived into, and then now we as God's people, we hunger for Jesus to come again so that we can be fully resurrected and be with him. Pray with me, and then the band's going to come, and they're going to continue us forward. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that uh, whatever I said that was beautiful and good, that people would remember it, God, and you would challenge them with it, you would encourage them with it, and whatever I said that was off, awful, God, you would wipe it from their memory. God, I pray that uh, you alone would be glorified as we end this time and we sing to you, we remember you, we eat the bread, we drink from the cup, we remember that our whole lives are for Christ, and not just for him, but to know him. We want to know him in the power of his resurrection. We love you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.